Hello and welcome to another episode of Hit The Lights podcast. This is the final podcast and uh, we're doing things a bit different today and I've taken over. We're going to put Gary in the quizzing chair and we're going to give him both barrels, see what he's all about, where he came from and yeah, let him know how we felt throughout the, uh, the journey. So here he is, Gary, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Gary Alder and you might have heard my voice before. Unfortunately, Peter's turned the tables on me now, and uh, it's probably a chance for me to just tell my story. Well, that's exactly why we're doing it, so um, let's get straight into it. So how long have you been in the industry? So I've been in the industry about 14, coming up 15 years. Um, So I started my apprenticeship at a little local company in Maidenhead called ALP. I uh, left school, not much support, didn't really know what to do. I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out what to do. I chased the money and I decided to do a business law degree. Um, Absolutely hated it. The the guy who was teaching it just depressed the hell out of me. And I thought if he's any marker of the industry, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, so I went and basically tossed it off for a year, um, doing absolutely nothing. Um, I was then given a boot up the arse by my now wife to go and actually find a career, find something to do, earn some money, do anything. And I applied for a host of apprenticeships in the local area, um, to plumbing and to electrical. I eventually got a letter back from one of the companies just saying, Thanks, but no thanks. We'll keep you on file. And then uh, a week later, uh, ALP actually called me back again and said, oh, we do have an opening now, actually. And can you come in for an interview? Yeah, just went in, gave a very brief interview. I was probably well overdressed in a suit and tie (laughs) for an apprenticeship interview. But I'm sure, I mean, I've done many interviews where people dress the same. I think it sets a, a good precedent when you enter the room and you at least look smart, you're on time and all that sort of thing. So... They ended up taking me on, went for about two, three years through college. Um, I mean, it's a funny story, actually, because I was so dead certain that I was going to do an apprenticeship and I was going to succeed. I was going to do it fast. I was going to do it well. And we were on a job at uh, AWE Aldermaston, the atomic weapons place. And it was my first day of college and I got told to miss it by the managing director. And I went okay so I got um, the electrician who was running the job to cover for me um, and I said look I'm going to college there's no way I'm missing college I don't care what the, what the story is I'm going it was the first day I'm setting a good impression and I am going to be there front and centre and I'm not missing anything first doors I ended up going the managing director actually came out to site that day I wasn't there um, and the following day, I got a verbal warning for going to college. But yeah, so I, I carried on college, did fairly well at college, did it quite quickly. I think I'm, without probably sounding too egotistical, I'm quite academic. So ended up doing things quite quickly. I got quite a f- few um, telling off, should we say, for doing exams too quickly. Uh, like literally, I remember like year two and year one exams, I was in and out within five to ten minutes of the multi-choice exams. I just didn't see the point. It was it was just easy. I, I'm not going to spend an hour for the sake of spending an hour. And I'd come out, I'd get, you know, 80, 90% and I'd still get chewed out <laughs> for it. If you spent another 10 minutes in there, you might have got 100%. 
Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing. I ended up having a mentality of I'm just going to pass. I, I know what, what I need to know. And I didn't probably treat the college aspect of my apprenticeship as thoroughly as I would now in terms of gaining the understanding. I rushed through it. Yeah, I must say, it does seem strange that you get a pass, a merit or a distinction on the exams, but it means nothing really because you either pass or fail your course, don't you? So yeah, no incentive there as such. No, that's it. And um, did that throughout my years. Um, I crashed out the other MVQ. Um, I just took photos of absolutely everything. Um, even when I was on AWE Aldermaston, um, we were only doing firearm in like conduit and tray. So I ended up doing some installs at home and just taking some photographs of that um, and getting a electrician round to my house to help me and take the photos and so that I couldn't have any excuse. Um, others were getting written letters from the employer to say, oh, they can't do it. They're only doing this. Excuse them. We'll finish it later sort of thing. And I just sort of sod that. I'm not. I'm not waiting around for this. So I need to get qualified and start earning some decent money. And again, that was probably one of the other drivers was was financial. Moved out quite early with with now wife and didn't have a pot to piss in. To be perfectly honest, it was an I was an apprentice. She she did like uh, admin and HR and stuff like that. So we didn't have a lot of money, and it, we were living week to week on on wages and stuff like that. And sometimes not even being able to pay bills. So. I was very driven to... Yeah, I must admit, you can definitely tell there's a, a time in your sort of apprentice career that you do make that switch from being a sort of a teenager to thinking, I need money now, I need to crack on. And then as soon as that switch happens, you notice a massive change in their mentality and punctuality mm. as well. It's it's a yeah, strange thing, really. Yeah, and I suppose we must. the industry probably gets a lot of that with adult learners. Um you know, again, they come into it because they're financially driven and it's just there's not that facility to, to guide them through at the moment. Um, a proper apprenticeship in, you know, in terms of the number of years that it actually takes to become fully competent or at least reasonably competent in a role. Did it take you to feel like you could go to your because obviously you're more industrial based mm. until you sort of be left to your own devices and control the site? Probably quite late in terms of controlling a site. Um it took me probably about four or five years to, to feel to that stage. So one of the things I did, obviously being financially driven, was I pestered um, the MD quite a bit in terms of getting responsibility. It was, okay, you're going on to a job with 20 other electricians to do this job. I'd say, well, give me a section of work. So like at Mogden Sewage Treatment Works, so it's one of the, I think it's like second largest in Europe, Sewage Treatment Works in London. We were doing installs across literally all parts of the process um so i said give me one of the sections i want to i want to do one of the sections even if it was just working on my own under my own stewardship still watched over still inspected work still checked um and verified and all that sort of stuff but that was how i slowly gained the responsibility and if it hadn't have been probably getting pinched to go into the uh, office a bit more earlier and the project management side of things I probably would have continued on that trajectory of taking more and more responsibility. Um, but as it was, I ended up getting called into the office as they had seen some of the certification and the paperwork that I was actually doing was of probably not necessarily the best, 
but it was certainly up there with the best uh, testing inspectors in the company in the company at the time um, in terms of not having errors and everything being quite thoroughly checked and the even when it was the old standard tick boxes, I don't know if you remember them, where you didn't have four or five pages of tick sheets on an install. It was literally the one page tick sheet. But lots of people would always put tick double insulation and things like that. And it'd be like, no, I know, I accurately know that that's not double insulation in terms of the installation. You can't take tails and call it double insulation because that's not what it's referring to. And it was things like that. Uh, it's good. Yeah, I remember that we learned on them at college. Obviously, you've been a couple of years older than me, but uh, yeah, we, d- we did have those certificates. Obviously, now it's a lot more thorough, but I must admit, I'm with you, and I can completely appreciate a nice, tidy, complete test certificate because mm. it helps you and obviously the people following you to carry out works, especially in the maybe perhaps critical works that you're doing. Yeah, and it's one of the things that followed through with me into uh, management was checking people's paperwork. So, you know. You, I mean, the likes of, um, you know, the compliance workbook and things like that weren't necessarily available back then. Um, You know, we're talking eight, seven, eight years ago. And it was sitting down, reviewing an electrician's paperwork. Immediately, you just you could flick between the pages, you know, what was right, what was wrong, what what challenges they've come across on site, knowing from you know, the conversations you've had with the project manager or or whatever, you you know, the site foreman and just um, you then get a feel for, OK, I know that isn't how you've done it. And I know that what needs to be corrected on this paperwork to make it right. But then it was just going back and a few times, particularly with the younger guys, pulling them back into the office and sitting down with them and spending an hour in the evening after work my working day had finished and actually explaining and what needed to be put right and if further investigation was needed the next day then go and make that further investigation to put that paperwork right yeah sounds like a sort of responsible qs role there making sure everyone's doing their job properly and advising them when they need it well yeah pretty much again i've i think i've mentioned this before but our company um were not the greatest and probably fairly typical potentially of the industry in terms of managing QS roles so we didn't typically have one per site it was the three uh, project managers in the office that were the QS's we would still complete the site inspections you know various things we probably do it once a week go up check the install part through um, you know, you'd be on the phone every day to them, what's going on and, and that sort of thing. You'd be able to help and manage it that way. But we didn't maintain one per site. So there was definitely probably a lacking in the systems that were in place. But that was, I think, the nature of having a small business. I don't think it was necessarily small businesses do struggle to have big business mentality. Having, you know, QA process and all this sort of thing in place even to basic ISO 9001 standard, it's not there. Small businesses don't have that sort of mentality. Yeah, so in smaller businesses, you tend to have a few people wearing many hats, whereas obviously a bigger industry, you'd have dedicated people for certain roles. Yeah, and that was basically it. So as I came came, uh, off the tools and into the office, basically I took the opportunity and I just said, look, what has the MD got qualification-wise? What do I need to do? So I came straight in. I said, well, if I'm marking test paperwork and I'm doing it already, I need to have the test and inspection, which was the 2391 back then. Went away and did that. 
loads of others uh, who weren't qualified with me on the course also came on. So we all did it as a bit of a group. So got that qualification. Next thing, right, what else am I doing? Right, I'm doing health and safety documentation, right? I'll go and get the knee bosh. So I went and did that. After that, right, what additional information is going to be valuable? So it was the HNC at that time. Um, so I went away and did the HNC for a couple of years, part-time college day release, um, which was probably the most interesting and fun course that I've actually done. I ended up doing various parts of mechanical learning as well. So pneumatics and hydraulics, structural loading um, and stuff like that, as well as the, the PLC stuff um, and the general further mathematics and advanced mathematics and stuff like that. So that was all really good at upskilling me and moving me into a wider project management mentality we did asset management as part of it and all these various other things that we learned so i took quite a lot away from that and literally the i think it was uh, the week after i'd completed and got my certificate um that was when the two directors slash project managers decided they were going to go leave and set up their own business so they did that and the owner, who was a part-time owner, um, with me essentially being the only last project manager in the company, and still only, uh, what was it, 25, 26, having just done my HNC, said, do you want to be MD? And the only option at that time was if I didn't do it, the company shut down. Right. And and about 30-odd people um, ended up being made, being made redundant. So... I said, all right, I'll do it, um, but I need to promote a few people I trust in the company. So I ended up bringing up a couple of the uh, guys onto the tools. We lost a lot of staff as well to the new company that was being set up. So they obviously being the MD and, and directors, they took a few, fair few guys with them. So I was ended up dealing with a lot of people handing in their notices, leaving, um, trying to salvage clients and things like that as well. So we lost probably about half the business um that they took with them so it was a massive learning curve for me and i learned a lot of do's and do nots during that time stress probably yeah it, it was quite stressful i think now this will probably sound probably maybe a bit too honest but i didn't find it that stressful because i, I was still only employed right fair enough. I, I i kind of viewed myself as being employed i didn't see it as playing with my own money essentially it, it was that aspect of things that I did take the stress home I was on the phone all the time I did work late I did work stupid hours I'd get in at like 6 6 30 a.m and I'd be there till 6 37 p.m um you know constantly working constantly doing you know we brought guys in from site to do the project management in the office but they'd never done quotations tenders um you know and meeting customers in that sort of format there was a lot of education that I needed to give as well as continue doing the work. And so that, that went on for about a year. We won some massive contracts um, with uh, a particular client um, who I won't name. So we had uh, a large office block in London for a well-known bank. And we also ended up winning um, uh, one of the stations for Crossrail. Um, but unfortunately, Fortunately, we, we did that for about three to four months, um, and both those contracts were on 90-day payment terms. The customer, when it came to the 90-day point, said, no, we're not going to pay you the 
few hundred grand we owe you for those months of work yeah and we were kind of like uh okay this is a problem um and eventually the owner said look i don't have any more money to to put in i can't fund this anymore um and a 47 year old business as it was at the time shut down all the guys went off into their own own things um and i didn't really know what to do and that was at the time i kind of fell out of love with the industry so i thought i'm gonna go start doing a bit of domestic work um i'm fed up with doing the the tendering i'm fed up with doing the paperwork the risk assessments and method statements I'm, I'm fed up with having to do you know 10 to 15 documents to get on site and install a bit of tray and a bit of conduit you know what i mean so you've, you've obviously done all that working in the industry and that and then you thought right it's time for a proper challenge i'm going to go work in the domestic soil. <laughs> do you know what I, I laugh but it was a skills change for me and that was where i ended up starting up on my own i had a, i had a few of the guys come across with the business um, that I previously managed, they came and worked for me. I took a few of the contracts across as well. So we still had lots of commercial work, um, but I set myself on my own, in my own van to go and do domestic. I would still do all the other stuff. I still go do the meetings. I still do all the documentation that went along with it, but I still did the domestic for myself. And as that progressed throughout its first year, just payment terms again, and clients not paying and me having to pay guys out of my own pocket I said I have learned a lesson on this and I am not getting burned again so I said to all the guys sorry I'm gonna have to let you go off into the wider world and I'm just gonna carry on I kept one apprentice with me to just go around basically doing the smaller domestic projects that kind of came in um, and that I've managed to source locally and, and around the areas and we just kind of potted on for about six months, just doing basic domestic work. Um, you know, money was okay. And then one day I just got a phone call um, from a, an agency out of the blue saying, we're looking for someone for Thames Tideway and Thames Water work. So I actually opted to go and do the Thames Water work. This was framework stuff, but I went for the interview for the, the job which I think was to run a, a project out, a sewage works out in the middle of nowhere. And the guy kept me waiting for well over an hour, even though I, obviously I turned up early, waited for him at the right time. Suit, obviously. Of course, always in a suit. Always in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, basically he kept me walking, so I just walked out. Um, and he kind of, I think he may have rung me afterwards, and I just said, yeah, don't worry about it. You can, you've shown me how you operate. Again, it's just things I've learned along the way that I, you just don't have time for it. No. Before we move into the tideway stuff, just you know, stepping back into the domestic world, how did you find personally the change of skills from obviously you being based, the big industrial stuff, your big armours and that, to then working on a little fuse board and changing pendants in someone's box room? Um, challenging. It was very challenging. And... It's a diff- It's a completely different skill set. Chasing out a wall, you know, you can think on a domestic level, if, you, if that's what your bread and butter is, yeah, it's a piece of piss. But typically, I come from a background where everything's surface, everything's protected by steel, um, you know, and you have a different skill set to having to chuck in a, you know, a twin and a through some joists, you know, and, and all that sort of thing. One of my biggest irritations probably were the clients 
to be perfectly honest. So on an, you know, on an industrial commercial scale, people, you tend to be very upfront. You discuss the work, you know, you do. And I followed those traits through into the domestic world, but there were still unreasonable expectations put on you. It was, how are you going to chase out that wall? Well, how do you think I'm going to do it? You know, um, oh, you have to do it without lifting up a carpet. Well, it, that's physically impossible. And I've said so many times, well, I'm happy to stick a trunk in on the wall and, and do what you like. I, you know, I, I couldn't care how a cable's got to get from A to B, but a cable does have to get from A to B. And th- there were a few jobs I walked from, a few disgusting properties where you've gone in and literally, I think one had vomit in the bath. And it was like, uh, okay, all right, I'm leaving. Thank you, bye. And I, I didn't even. Sites and domestics. So. But yeah, and then you, you're kind of looking at a different set of regulations, really, and you do have to go back and refocus on on the regs. Well, yeah, I was going to say like how you obviously we got BS seven six seven one, but how did you find like part A of the building regs with the notches and the holes in joists and stuff like that? I, I ended up having to carry that around um, in the van, to be perfectly honest, just to. There, it's a great book. Yeah, yeah, that that and the on-site guide I kept in the van with me, and um, they were just always there as points of reference, you know, without having to trawl through the the bigger regs book. Um, they were they were just quick references. Yeah, you end up you know you've done a hard day's work in domestic, not quite so much necessarily depending on what you're doing industrially, commercially. But I did, I did, well, I say that, but I had some hard days industrially and commercially. So I did a lot of work on um, national grid gas for about a year or so. Mm-hmm. And I think it was one of the country's hottest heat waves back in the mid 2000s, you know, working in a boiler suit with in a GRP kiosk when it's 32 degrees and you're not allowed to take it off because it's flame retardant. So you've got to, you've got to keep it on. Um, I think that was some of the most hardest challenging work when you're dripping and dripping and dripping and nowhere to go to cool down i can appreciate that i'm not one for the heat myself and uh, on a similar sort of story of people wearing boiler suits i've had it before where we've had people strip down into their underwear then put their boiler suit on before going into a loft yeah yeah we were doing similar so. <laughs> <laughs> good thing the clients weren't around yeah it was all that sort of stuff of like you free you put a, a bottle of water in the freezer the night before and then stick it in your pocket in the boiler suit. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of keep you semi cool. <laughs> yeah, back onto the domestic thing. It, it was it was good. I very much enjoyed setting my own hours um, and not necessarily having to answer to too many people other than myself. Like I, there were some days when I thought, you know what, I haven't really got anything lined up other than maybe sitting doing writing some quotes, doing whatever. And I just go, you know what, I'm having a day off and probably relax a bit more than I should have done. But I didn't really care enough at the time. I just didn't enjoy electrics enough. Yeah, no, I suppose as long as the bills are getting paid and your family's all safe, that's all what it's all about, really. So, yeah. So just quickly, then, what sort of work did you take on in the domestic setting then? So obviously we take on rewires and fusible changes and anything really, but was there a certain area you, you loved doing or liked doing more than others? Or Yeah, I loved a board change. Love going in and inspecting a property and then doing a ball change. Typically, you end up caveating the certificate with so many things that, okay, I'll do this because clients just didn't have the money. Typically, it was always chucking in a, a bond to a utility somewhere in the property and and doing a board change. Yeah, because um, obviously you're quite 
clued up on your earth bonding, aren't you? I think we spoke before, you said that you worked in sort of food production lines with anti-static bonds. Yeah, so yeah, that was um, that was probably came slightly later on when I was like project managing. Um, but we did uh, a flavours company um, over in Milton Keynes and they have a lot of powders. So it was typically uh, like your ATEX zone 22 and 21, which is all dust level of protection um so they would have all of their barrels of powders and chemicals to make you know uh, various flavorings for crisps drinks and all that sort of thing um and they would have these large trolleys where they would load them up um and basically then it obviously creates some static uh, and creates a potential um and to avoid explosion what we ended up doing was uh, an atex system where you have a a junction box essentially with an LED light on it. Uh, you wire in tape around the premises and you can then drop down to any bits of equipment in the area from the tape um, with bonding conductors. You then have a clamp that comes out of this junction box that would go onto uh, one of the barrels and it would establish continuity between that and the main earth bar. Only once you uh, had a, the green light on the junction box because you then actually operate the, the machinery um, and do all of that sort of stuff. So it kind of provided that inhibit into the system and a visual for safety and earthing for the user. Yeah, that sounds good. Obviously, well thought through protocol to make sure no one's getting a shock or an explosion. Well, yeah, I mean, you see quite a few um, videos online of people not t- thinking about static electricity. And it's so easily done in environments where... You've got lots of moving vehicles. You know, you've got um, not necessarily got rubber floors, but you've got lots of uh, latex floors and all that sort of thing. And it creates all the friction in the, and it's got a discharge somewhere. And typically it will be in these metal frameworks that su- are supporting the process equipment. Yeah, I had a phone call off someone in a domestic setting the other day, actually. He's just laid a new laminate flooring and they're getting all these shots when they're touching these metal face plates. Yeah, Obviously, because we had a bit of building work on there. There's a film of dust on top of the laminates creating the static. They're getting charged and then right. it's discharging whenever they're touching something with a different potential. Yeah. So did you, um, what did, how did you advise them resolving that? I just said, you want to get a mop out really? Get rid of the dust. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get to go in there with a trolley and an anti-static bond network. No, I, I, I was thinking. Get rid of the dust. I, I was thinking you might have said like PVC faceplates or something. Well, it's what they wanted. Yes, uh, perhaps, but you know, then what if you plug in a class one kettle or something? You're gonna have the same issue. Yeah. No. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll just I'll, get them off out. Good help. I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so just mentioned an ATEX there as well, which for those that don't know is atmosphere explosives. It's just you know similar to what Compex. Compex would be the actual training, but ATEX is the regulations. Is that right, Gary? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on from the ATEX then would probably be a good time to move into your current role with Tideway. So yeah. what is Tideway to start? So about, well, right, I'll start with the, the fundamentals, principles of um, what happens at, at the moment. So obviously when London has large storm weather or, or large uh, amounts of rain across uh, the capital, the sewer capacity, it reaches limit essentially and there's nowhere else for it to go 
except to overflow into the river so as you're walking along the thames in london you'll probably see if you look into the river walls at low tide there's quite a lot of uh, flat valves um, that are there and basically that is where uh, when the sewage reaches capacity it, it overflows into the river um, so what we're kind of doing is intercepting that by building chambers right on those uh, river walls and we are directing it into a down a shaft into a tunnel that's under the Thames and take it all the way to the other East London and Beckton sewage treatment works where it can then be processed properly and then be reutilized for normal tap water and drinking water. So when you say sewage is that storm water? So yeah that's probably a, a good point so typically you'll have normal flows of sewage in these um pipes um and london's capacity i think when it was built in the victorian era was about i think it was built for one to two million people but obviously london operates at about eight million people at the moment um so it, it overflows regularly uh, literally um you know a slightest bit of rain and you can be looking at overflowing into the thames which is why it looks and smells so disgusting the difference between stormwater and sewage is obviously sewage is pretty evident as to what it is but stormwater is this level of rainwater that's added to the mixture so typically we're only really going to see stormwater going down the, the the tideway tunnel um because that's it's only for that use it's only for that purpose so it will only overflow in those instances um it's not going to be for general use of sewage so yeah, the sewage capacity is fine but the overflow which we're now building is for the stormwater yes and the idea is that theoretically this should this structure should stand and last for 120 years it's when your asset management comes in then it does indeed yes and i know you're very familiar with that now aren't you i'm all over asset management at the moment <laughs> <laughs> okay so your so your role currently then in tideway is what exactly so tideway is split because it's such a, a large project it's like over a billion pounds um no single contractor wanted to take the or necessarily could take the risk of that amount of uh, infrastructure because that's probably their whole annual turnover so it's been th split into three sections um, and I lead West London so that's Hammersmith and Acton all the way down to Fulham so that section of the tunnel is my responsibility electrically and what sort of electrical components did you have in that I mean typically it's not process heavy um, so, you know, because it's only going to be for stormwater and bits and pieces like that. So we've got basic level instrument and flow rate measurements and things like that. But that, that's about it, to be perfectly honest. Right. And then do you have things in place, obviously, in line with your asset management to ensure that you're constantly getting a decent data feed? Um, yes, there are. It's, it's probably not directly. So we've got asset management systems. Um and we've got the the data logging and the trending and stuff through the equipment. But in terms of like the whole life in, and in achieving the best cost effective solution, um, yeah, all that sort of stuff for asset management has been carefully selected, um, you know, fit for purpose and all that sort of thing that, you know, that you're expected to deliver contractually, uh, as well as um, all the information that you would then need to store on telemetry and um, SCADA, which is uh, the supervisory control and data acquisition. All good fun then. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, it, 
<laughs> I mean, that, that's one of the things. So coming into that, like I, I kind of pick up the story where I left off. I'd got a phone call. So I was doing domestic work. I got the phone call to go and do it. Um, and I initially actually turned it down um, and said, nah, I'm still kind of happy doing domestic um, unless something really exciting comes up. I'm not going to bother with it. Then they rung me back again a week later saying, oh, you, you interested? Come on. I, all right, I'll, I'll do um, an interview, but I'm not traveling to London. It'll be a phone interview um, just because I had that previous experience with the Thames Water one where the guy messed me around and didn't even show. I ended up doing a phone interview. He said, look, you're, you're spot on. We, need, we want to get you on. So I, literally, I think it was like two weeks later, I ended up joining on, on my birthday a couple of years ago and never looked back since, to be honest. Uh, I was, yeah, well, that, that's it. It was only supposed to be a six-month contract, um, and I'm getting on for two and a half years. So I'm obviously doing something well. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe not so well. <laughs> no, <laughs> because six months it's taken him two and a half years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the one of the biggest things I I probably had lacking from my career was being on the contractor side. So I'd always been the sub contractor, um, never the main contractor. And so like a tier one, tier two situation. Exactly. Yeah. And I thought well, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to sit and learn. Um, even if it was only for six months, I thought, yeah, for six months, at least then I can put that on the CV. I can learn a few things and I can take a lot away and move forward. And it might make me a better subcontractor, which was one of my approaches. I thought if I ever do get a love for it again, at least I know what they're going to be looking for. So I ended up getting involved in a lot of the uh, procurement systems, um, ended up getting involved in a lot of the design management systems, um, as well as kind of chairing working groups and doing all these other things and helping manage it across London as well as not just West specific but you know collaborating and, and managing with East and Central London as well um, which itself brings its own challenges um, and yeah no I've, I, it's the best learning experience I've ever had in, in a role. Yeah. Obviously talking to you that you've enjoyed it and that and clearly along the way you've managed to add many strings to your bow or guitar, should we say? <laughs> yeah. But no, and then obviously recently you've attained a chartered engineer status. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it was probably about a year into Tideway, and a lot of the engineers around me are all chartered. Um, and we brought on a, a graduate onto the scheme um, who was working under me. Um, and she just happened to mention, um, oh, you should really think about, you know, getting chartered. And it was one of those things where I just thought, ah, no, you need a master's. I'm not um, I'm not really cut out for that sort of thing. I think I'll just end up getting a quick rejection. Um, even though I'd, I'd been a member of the IET for about three years by that point. And I was just kind of like, well, I glossed over it. I saw master's at the top and I thought, right, that's it. I'm not, not going to bother with that. But then I, I went back and re- reread it, had another look. And um, started listening to the likes of Paul Meenan and bits and pieces uh, that were that were going on in social media and online. And I thought, yeah, well, I should do it. Um, I'm in a, I'm in a role that's the biggest the water industry has ever seen. And I'm leading one of the main three sections. I, I have a position, not necessarily of, of influence, but responsibility. And it'd be wrong for me to just sit on that and not move forward and progress myself 
and I should challenge myself. I've challenged myself by coming to the role. So let's see if I do can or can meet the criteria. So and ended up applying. It took me about three or four attempts going with a, a professional registration advisor um, who I will shout out to now, uh, Mandy Beer. She was very, very helpful um, from the IET. Yeah, it, it was spilling your life onto a, a page and some of it demonstrating the competencies you may not realise you do, but you do do those things. And, you know, like being like we've spoken about, probably some of the stuff I've mentioned in the podcast, spending time sitting back with engineers and electricians to help them develop their skills and things like that. It's just those sort of little things that can help you fill the criteria and the competencies that, that are needed. And once I had that tideway element on my CV, it, it, it really um, took me to that next stage. And I could then com- uh, confidently state that, yes, I am fulfilling these criteria. I suppose when it comes to actually physically writing it down on paper, you could appreciate you've done a lot more than what you can think off the top of your head at one moment. Well, that's it. And they, I mean, they do limit you to, I think it's 11 pages and probably only about seven of those are, are actually written pages. And yeah, it was one of those where my text just kept getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's on there technically. So, they can't. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I enjoyed doing the process. I took a few things away from the process as well, um, like creating a professional development plan. Um, so that's something I, I update now. And, you know, as, as I've discussed with you, obviously doing the HND, I'm, I'm aware of what courses I have to do to maintain my role as a minimum. Obviously, the HND not necessarily being one, but it's something that I budgeted for for myself. Yeah. It was a beneficial thing. And, you know, I've had some really lovely messages when I kind of shared it online um, from lots of people in the industry who who have said that it's inspired them. It's showing that electricians don't have to have master's degrees to to work up to a, a recognized position in the industry. And, and that that's been a, a lovely bonus from it. I must say it's an inspi- it's inspiration, obviously not having the master's that other people you can attain it without having to spend years in the university you don't realize how often you actually interact with graduates who operate at tier one level and they need they need help as well and i think they are naturally pushed into the professional development so they probably get to understanding their competencies a lot earlier but if we could do that with apprentices coming into the industry I think the industry would be in a lot better position and we'd have probably trying to think of the nicest possible word. We'd we'd have uh, a skill set within the industry. Yeah. Competency, a better attitude, perhaps. Yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, we'll do that one. (laughs) (laughs) Right, let's um, let's go back. So what would you say was one of the worst things in the electrical industry right now? One of the worst things. Worst things. We'll get to the nice things, but let's start with a bad note. needs improving it's not right and you know let's let's try and get it out there make people aware of it probably ownership of responsibilities within the industry i would say no single person or organization is willing to stand up and actually make themselves accountable in this industry um we have too many uh, cpss we have systems that don't work we have people who can go 
into the industry in two weeks. We have people, I mean, I'm probably listing all the things that are bad, but I think if you were going to correct those, one, and it may have to stem from government, but someone actually taking control of the situation and actually saying this can't happen anymore is something I'd like to see. But that's probably a massive uh, dream, to be perfectly honest. What I'm sort of hearing what you're saying there is you want one responsible body that governs it all. And obviously you can't come in and become fully qualified in two weeks. Maybe you're at a stage, but you can't be fully qualified out there, subcontracting, doing your own work in two weeks. Yeah. I mean, I'm not kind of attacking the short courses, but it's one of the contributing factors. And I think if, if, if a company, uh, I say a company, you obviously got the likes of NICIC being private companies, although they'll tell you they're voluntary. Um, you know, what does that even mean? What, what does voluntary mean? You know, either you are, monitoring and authorizing people into the industry or you're not and yeah that that level of responsibility needs to um needs to step up to the plate i think yeah someone needs to step up and take account for all what's going on and try and make a change for the better yeah definitely and I, i think you can accept that there are those out there who are trying to make it better um but ultimately a change will have to come soon all right so that's obviously the bad stuff so what is good about the industry what do you like and what do we need to see more of the good thing in the industry is the amount of people there are out there now willing to do good um and i think that's probably through engaging on the likes of social media but you go on to you know the likes of youtube uh, you know even like these podcasts and the amount of people we've engaged with on, on the podcast the amount of people willing to come forward share their story, um, share what their thoughts on what's right and wrong in the industry. You've got the likes of, of E5 trying to level everyone up. Um, I think it's a great time to be an electrician um, at the moment. And if this had all been around when I entered the industry, God knows where I'd be now. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, you know, with all the what's out there at the minute, me being a little bit of a nerd, apparently, I'd have lapped it up. And, Who said that? Who said that? I don't know. Somebody <laughs> keeps posting guitar videos. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, like you say, it's it's great for newbies in the industry because there's so much information out there now. How much do you want? It's there. That's and it. I will say as well, in the last three months or you know, sort of since lockdown started, the camaraderie has definitely come on on the socials. Before it was a bit of a negative place, but it seems to come on leaps and bounds in the last few months. Yeah, I think um, more people are picking up the phone to each other and, and the network is getting smaller and we're all starting to actually know each other. And, you know, uh, hopefully there are there are lots of those guys out there um, and gals who will maybe potentially meet up afterwards. You know, why not? We're all, we're all part of the same industry. We're all uh, fighting the same fight. So why not? No, I agree. And I know a few of us are going to go to the national conference, which is in November now, I think. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then um, I think there's a few guys on Twitter talking about meeting up for a beer or something, which, yeah, sounds great to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we can dream of it at the moment, can't we? So, so obviously, we've had all this conversation. We've learned about where you came from, what you're doing now, but where are you going, Gary? I don't know. To you be said perfect. you've got a development action plan, so come on, you must know the answer. 
Well, I think it's one of those things where I know what I'm going to educate myself with, but I don't know where I go career-wise, and it's not ever anything I've ever planned. It, it all feels like it's on been on a wing and a prayer. And when when you look back, I've had tremendous amounts of luck. You know, like the the fact that I happened to get that second letter to even start an electrical apprenticeship and get get the interview. Then it was, you know, um, getting called into the office when there were plenty of other people to to pick from. I got that opportunity for for that. Then when they when the manage, managing director and the other director left, I was the one who got offered the opportunity. He could have very easily shut the business down. I got that opportunity to step into those shoes. Just happened to get the phone call for Tideway. They happened to ring me back even after I'd said no, and I'm here today. And I think it's just see where it takes me. I try not to stress too much about it because I've got like 40 years of work left. So, yeah, so I, I, I can't imagine myself not working or doing something in my life. But I, I don't know if the industry keeps going the way it is, if I can keep finding challenging roles. You know, the reason I went on to Tideway was because I wanted to do something that will last long into the future. Um, and we'll 120 years out of something you've done then it's yeah certainly a lot better than anything I've ever put in well I mean yeah and it's it's better for the environment it's better for um, everyone's health it's just generally a, a, a good cause and that was one of the things that I thought yeah I, I can do that project so if there's another if there's another one of those um, not necessarily uh, you, we're not the water industry isn't going to get one of these again um, anytime soon but I'm sure there'll be another project that will intrigue me. Um, I mean, probably haven't mentioned is, you know, my background in control panels. So if something came up to do with control panels, you know, I might jump at it, to be honest, because that really feels more like a hobby than work. And I had so much fun doing those jobs, um, particularly with the guys that I worked with at the time. And, you know, they're all still friends today. So it's... Uh, yeah, well, it'd be not obviously control panels. They're very OCD people. All the wires have to be right. Everyone I've ever spoke to that does control panels say everything has to be absolutely immaculate. Yeah. So I'd for you to dig out one of your old consumer units in a domestic thing and post that online. I, I did. Do you know what? So one of the things um, I did when I was doing the domestic work was I started up the the likes of the rated people, my builder accounts, and I did used to post. I've closed the accounts now, but I think that I think the photos still exist out there. So I'll try and um, I'll try and find them and I'll I'll share them. Yeah, for no reason other than a bit of a laugh, but I'm well, sure they're beautiful, Gary. There's no laughing matter. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what came over me. <laughs> the final question, <laughs> the most important question you'll ever be asked. Yeah, go on. What's your favourite film? Well. Luckily, no one said it on here yet, um, but it, I could watch it nearly every day, and it would be Braveheart. Braveheart. Love a bit of Braveheart. Love seeing an Englishman get his head chopped off. Well, to be honest, I thought it might be something Mel Gibson based because I can see his poster hanging on the wall behind you. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he's, he's going to be a fan, but yeah, Braveheart. Yeah, love love Braveheart. I, I love the fact that. I know it's historically not 100% accurate, but the basis of the story is there that's fairly similar to history. And then you've kind of got, you've got the, the battle scene, so you get the action, you've got the romance, you've got the tragic ending, 
you know, and and all that sort of thing. It's just a you got Mel. You've got Mel Gibson, who's who's one of my favourite actors. Can't can't fault Lethal Weapon and thing like that, but it's just not Braveheart. No, no. <laughs> See, seeing him get tortured by a Japanese man with some sponges is not quite as good as uh, him chopping off some heads in Braveheart. <laughs> good. Right, well, on that bombshell, I'd like to thank you for your time. No, yeah, thank you. And I'll uh, I'll leave you with it. Thank you very much for the podcast. We've enjoyed them all up to now, and I look forward to another series in the future. We can only hope. <laughs> Thanks, <Jamie. laughs> Cheers, Pete. And thank you, everyone, for listening.